It's Chris here, the slower half of the paradox. I had a great conversation with Matt Strauss. I recommend you check out Matt's work. You can Google him, and I've included some links in our Substack. Um, Matt is what I would call an unlikely medical officer of health. You can hear his story, and we have a talk that ranges from David Hume and the is-ought problem to absolute versus relative risk uh, reduction in wearing masks. Um, it, it's a pretty amazing guy who can range over that much territory and always sound intelligent and well-informed. So uh, well done, Matt, on what you've done, and I think you'll be interested in hearing what he has to say. Thanks, Matt Strauss, for talking to me today. And uh, yeah, I'm very interested to hear your story. I, I, I know a bit of it already, but maybe for folks who'll be listening to us, maybe you can just let us know your background, what you did as you got into medicine, before medicine, because you're unique in that way. And then we'll talk about how you got to be the medical officer of health after that. Okay, the life story. Uh, so I, um, one thing about me is I went to med school very young. I got in when I was 18. Um, and I, I came from a very religious and homeschooled background and I lived at home. So going to med school was uh, my first kind of foray into the world. Uh, I, previous to that, I had a degree in English literature, which I guess is a little bit peculiar. Uh, long story short, I became an intensivist. Uh, I was 27 when I started. Uh, so I've now practiced critical care medicine for 10 years. I was the chief of my ICU up until uh, a few years ago. Uh, when my wife started training uh, at Queen's University. So when she was moving uh, to go start her residency, I kind of hustled and found an academic position at Queen's, which I enjoyed very much um, uh, teaching and, and such. And then I thought, well, <clears throat> oh, and the thing was when she, uh, when I was applying for that teaching position, I was uh, in a journalism program at the University of Toronto through the Monk School. Um, so as I came on staff at Queen's, I had published um, a few pieces, one for the, uh, the National Post, uh, one for Vice News, um, one for The Conversation. I was really excited to, to keep uh, writing and publishing. And my foray into teaching and journalism was that, I mean, I, I've been practicing critical care for a while. I was getting very frustrated with, um, you know, I've had the same patient that I put on the ventilator three times um, uh, over a period of two years. And sometimes that's because they're a poorly controlled diabetic uh, who keeps going into DKA, not that you want to intubate DKA, as you know. Um, sometimes it was for COPD and they hadn't stopped smoking. Sometimes it was for overdose and they continually took overdoses. Um, and it did feel to me that I was not dealing with root problems. And one paper that really um, blew my mind, and we talked about this a little bit on the phone, I think was this 2017 DMJ paper that showed that people who cycle to work are 50% more, less likely to die in the next five years than people who drive to work. Um, so I became something of a cycling activist um, and just, I guess, interested in bigger issues. So uh, when the pandemic rolled around, part of what was interesting about my context was my wife and I got married on March 14th of 2020. And so for the three days before my wedding, I more or less stayed up all night reading every paper that existed on COVID-19. So there was this brief shining moment there where I, I had read everything that there was. There's now 500,000 papers on COVID-19 and nobody can claim to have read them all. Um, but we were trying to decide whether you know, our grandparents would die because we were having this uh, festivity. Uh, we got away with it. It was the best day of our lives. And then on March 16th, everything locked down. So I think my perception of the lockdowns and the human costs were partly that I knew I, I, my, my wife would have been so psychologically devastated if our wedding got canceled at the last minute and, and thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of couples had their weddings canceled. Um, 
And then what I started witnessing in the hospital, so both places where I practiced, Guelph, Ontario and Kingston, Ontario, had very low COVID burden to start. And we had extremely low hospital occupancy rates. So I've always had Twitter. I've been on Twitter for, I think, 10 years and never had much attention. I, I tweeted something to the effect of like my ICU is 25% and 25% uh, full right now. This has never happened before. Like it was a ghost town. And to me, that just meant, you know, maybe lockdowns were successful. Maybe they weren't. Um, but we're locked down too much. If the idea is to preserve ICU capacity and our ICU is the emptiest it's ever been, that doesn't really make much sense. And that tweet went viral. It got like 25,000 likes. I, I didn't really know what was going on. Um, Right-wing uh, media personalities in the United States were well-known, were, were retweeting it. Um, but I continued writing. I, I pitched um, some pieces in Canada about my views about why the lockdowns were bad and how the pandemic was likely to proceed concerningly those media outlets that I had previously written for stopped returning my emails. There was something of a omerta on this subject. Um, an editor who ex initially accepted one of my pieces and then his, his boss kind of said, no, you don't. Um, he got me in touch with the spectator in the UK and they took about seven pieces of mine, which was one of my proudest moments uh, really to, to be writing in, it's, it's the old, oldest uh, weekly magazine in the world that's still in print. Um, and what I was writing about was just sort of the effect of, was a lot about the human cost of pandemic policy. And uh, we were all glued to our screens and looking at the case counts, the death counts. And I was writing about, well, I had two elderly women come uh, under my care who were starving to death because their families weren't allowed into their nursing home to feed them. And the nursing home staff uh, or just did not have the capacity to do that. I don't think they even knew they didn't have the capacity to do that because the families were shouldering that, that burden of care all along. And I think that healthcare is complicated and human health is complicated. And when we became myop myopically focused on COVID-19, you know, so those two starving women, and they, so they had hypoalbuminemia and uh, hypernatremia and uh, ketosis and they got better when we fed them. Um, and that misery that they underwent was never on the, the scrolling news ticker on CNN or on CP24. And so my, I just felt very strongly that if no one's going to speak to this, um, the human downsides, uh, we're, we're going to keep hurting people. Um, so as a patient advocate, I felt very compelled to keep doing that. Sorry, this is such a long answer, but um, it was, it's been a long two years. It's good. It's good. Uh, unfortunately, uh, in about November of 2020, um, the administration at Queens uh, became very upset at my ongoing public commentary, I would say. And what followed was uh, about a year and a half of, um, I think it's fair to say harassment in the administration there. Uh, and me, so I had a lot of emails, a lot of meetings I had to go to where I was standing, you know, I have not only do university professors have sort of a common law expectation of academic freedom, it was directly written into my contract. So I was saying again and again, like, this is academic freedom. If I, if I say something that's inaccurate, please let me know the inaccuracy. I'll correct it immediately. Um, but they, so they had sent me um, uh, a letter saying that I had committed misinformation. And, and I, again and again, just asked them, what misinformation are you talking about? And, and in truth, their response was, you should know what misinformation we're talking, the general misinformation, misinformation, mm -hmm. uh, which is a very dissatisfactory answer. So. Um, after about six months, I would say, of this harassment, um, some community members in Haldeman Norfolk contacted me um, saying they were looking for a new medical officer of health, the last one having departed. 
um, and Holman Norfolk is rather, uh, well, not rather, it is a rural community um, with uh, a large agricultural industry. And the way I theorized why I was well suited to this community is, I think if you live and work at a university and spend your life in the ivory tower, you can come up with all sorts of theories about how, um, how you know how to prevent pandemics and do public health and, and keep patients alive. Um, and you can continue to publish models. Um, and as far as the Ontario Science Table goes, those, those models can keep failing again and again, but you can remain the, the world expert on, uh, on failing to predict what will happen next. I think that if you're a farmer and you have a theory about how to grow rutabagas, uh, you find out real fast if that theory doesn't work. And when you don't grow any rutabagas, you, don't, you lose your farm. You, you don't get to continue to publish papers about your amazing rutabaga theory. So I think that it's a community with a lot of common sense. They were looking for a more common sense approach. Um, and so I, I was appointed to be their medical officer of health. Uh, this drew uh, national outrage from the mainstream media, uh, the Toronto Star, the Canadian press, the CDC, um, all wrote ludicrously critical um, articles about me. Uh, some of them contained factual inaccuracies that my lawyer was able to um, ask them to correct, and they did. I'm, I'm glad for that. Um, people made really uh, awful predictions. Uh, they said I was unqualified. I didn't know what I was doing. I was going to have blood on my hands. People were going to die. Um, and, and long story short, I've been in the position for eight months now and, and the COVID-19 mortality um, in my jurisdiction relative to the jurisdiction surrounding mine, relative to other rural communities in Southwestern Ontario um, has declined. Yeah. So I think the proof is in the pudding. Um, I think that uh, all those papers I read about COVID-19 in the first place, I think my direct patient contact throughout the pandemic, I think my 10 years of critical care training um, and I think the courage and common sense of the community uh, all played a part in that success. So uh, at the moment, I'm feeling rather vindicated and um, excited about the future, I guess I would say. Cool. So, so a few questions. Number one, did you, did you ever picture yourself being a medical officer of health? Had you ever had designs on that? Or was that just sort of coming at you out of space when you got the offer? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely not. And so the motivation was I'd been writing... Um, uh, about this. I've been tweeting about it. I've been yelling it from the rooftops, really. Uh, and I felt like that was successful to some measure, but we were still locking down. We, we locked down um, in December of 2020. We locked down in the spring of 21. We locked down again in the winter of 21. Um, so I, I was concerned. And, and I was saying, We all understand evidence-based medicine, at least in theory. Uh, we all understand that real-world data ought to supersede modeled predictions. We all understand that randomized data, or, or data at least even in ecological studies with some sort of control, is superior to um, pre-post-observational type stuff. Um, and I had collected about seven really well-done papers uh, showing that lockdown with proper control showing that, that lockdowns didn't affect COVID-19 mortality. Um, so I was just so perplexed. The, the, the Canadian media still wouldn't run my pieces. Um, the administration at the university I worked at was not interested in my point of view. Uh, and I was just like, how we're doing the wrong thing. How do, how do we change it? Um, 
And so when they approached me and gave me the opportunity to, I guess, put my money where my mouth was and, and even to have some small jurisdiction on to, in Ontario to act as a control group um, so that eight months later, as I, as I now am, I could say, look, it, I, I didn't do extra mask mandates. I didn't do extra vaccine mandates. I didn't do extra quarantine. I didn't um, shut down uh, extra schools. I didn't, I didn't do any of this stuff. Um, and our COVID-19 mortality has declined relative to other jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. so I, I guess I was just at my wit's end and I, I couldn't think of anything else to do. So um, no, it, it had, you know, I did mention that I was interested in larger issues that I now see as pertaining to the public health, such as bicycle lanes. Mm -hmm. um, but no, this was, this was never a career goal of mine. I felt it, it would honestly, Chris, it would be hard to overemphasize the amount of distress I was in. Like I was, I was doing extra shifts in the ICU. Um, the, the administration at the hospital was harassing me on a weekly basis. And I, I didn't want to live in the sort of society they were creating where you were ordered to cancel your, your father's funeral or ordered to cancel your prom. Or um, at one point, the, the government of Ontario um, uh, ordered police to stop people on the street or, or pull over their car to ask them if they had a good reason to be out of their house. Like it truly was police state stuff and not on a good scientific basis. Um, so that's why I felt compelled to take this job. So far, I really like it. I mean, the, the, the other happy news is it's a, it's a great job and I really like the people. So um, it's, I'm happy for it to be my career for now. So, so a couple of questions on, on what you said. So first, first question is, you know, as somebody who is a medical officer of health now, you, you kind of mentioned that you felt there were things happening in the province that f felt wrong to you, the police state, etc. What do you see as the proper bounds? What do you see as the role of the medical officer of health and the proper bounds on that role in terms of the power they have over people's day to day lives? What, what do you think their role should be? I don't know that I have a good theoretical answer to that question. I, I think that the, the basic principles of medical ethics, beneficence, non-malfeasance, justice, and autonomy uh, ought to apply to what public health officers do. And interestingly, in conversations that I've had with other, with other public health colleagues, um, some believe that autonomy ought not to be on the table, that this is not a consideration. Um, and I think that's incorrect. I think that, of course, as, a, as an eMERGE physician, you have um, you have trampled over people's autonomy when they harm themselves and you fill out, uh, I guess it wouldn't be called a form one in your jurisdiction, yeah. um, but you commit them for psychiatric evaluation. <clears throat> um, but we ought to take that really seriously. Like it, it should be a little bit sacred where we're trampling on somebody's civil liberties. You better have a really rock solid um, ethical reason to do that. So I don't think, I'm not, so radical as to say public health can never um, uh, order someone to quarantine or something like that. Um, but it, it needs to be well thought out. It needs to be scientific. It needs to be evidence-based. It needs to be subject to democratic accountability. Um, so if, if those farmers and, and their city councilors say, hang on, wait a second, um, what you're doing doesn't make sense. You better be able to explain it um, in, in, in clear terms. So we, as pertains to COVID-19, I'm very comfortable saying you have COVID, you can't go to work at the nursing home tomorrow. Right. Um, and most of that's been taken on by the province at this point. Um, 
there's there are interesting local considerations. So there's a large migrant farm worker um, uh, contingent. Um, so some uh, folks from Mexico and the Caribbean who come to work in Canada for six to eight months during um, planting and harvesting season, and they live in congregate facilities, and they are in many ways vulnerable because they they don't have an OHIP card and they're they're not um, well integrated into the, into the community. Um, so it, it is incumbent on the local public health official to take these local considerations into account that the, this is a vast province, um, that the, the province might not immediately have their finger on that pulse. Um, but beyond that, encouraging folks to make good personal health choices is the mainstay of what I do. So when I came to town, I started saying, I'm not interested in forcing you to get vaccinated. I'm interested in convincing you to get vaccinated. And I, I put it in, in all my interviews, it was in all the papers, I was on the radio saying, if you are hesitant about getting vaccinated for COVID-19, call my office, I would love to counsel you about it. It's a small health unit, it's only 110,000 people. Um, but you know, for a while there, I was doing three or four phone calls like that. I got the vaccination rates up, um, but not by force. Uh, and I think, so I, I think that consent and compassion based um, medical communication is the major role of the public health official. And, and that's what I've been. Um, so, so actually treating, treating people like intelligent and autonomous individuals. Yeah. And so some of those conversations, the, the, the best conversations to me, you know, from a, let's say a harm reduction point of view. So if someone said, you know, I'm 45, I smoke cigarettes, uh, I'm overweight. Um, my son plays hockey. He's 16. There's no way you're vaccinating him, but you know, based on our conversation, I, I guess I should get vaccinated. That's a win. Mm -hmm. um, and acknowledging their rationale. Um, and I had a conversation, this was on Facebook, uh, this was like 10 years ago, where a colleague of mine was calling anyone who doesn't get the flu vaccine stupid. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was like, hey man, like, I think that the flu vaccine is not as effective as the measles vaccine. I think that um, if you're young and healthy, flu is not as deadly as, as other things that we get vaccinated for. I think that it's been really hard to show mortality benefit from the flu vaccine in general when it was first adopted universally in Ontario. It was on a health economics point of view, like days missed from work. It, was, it wasn't for mortality. So like, I worry that you lose credibility when you call anyone who has these reasonable concerns stupid. And he was like, no, we lose credibility. Like we, we give ammunition to the anti-vaxxers when we don't insist that every vaccine is the best vaccine. I was like, no, I don't, I don't think people work like that. I think people can tell when you're bullshitting them and when you don't acknowledge their realistic concerns, um, they, they just put less trust in you. And then you get fewer people who really need to be vaccinated, vaccinated. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's interesting. I'll just, as a little aside, I, I said a number of years ago that when, when the chicken pox vaccine came out, I, I thought it should have been not on the regular schedule with everything else. Cause to me, it's not like a measles or polio vaccine. It's, it's sort of a different thing. You know, like I'm, I'm more than old enough to have practiced a good chunk before we had vaccination and, and we didn't have kids dying in droves. It was kind of a miserable thing and some kids got sick and whatnot, but it just wasn't, it wasn't a major source of source of death and disability. It was, uh, Kind of one of these it wasn't the low-hanging fruit for vaccination and when we kind of pushed in there I, I thought it actually gave people who were against vaccines in general a little bit of ammunition to say well if they're forcing me to get vaccinated for chickenpox, what about all these other ones you know so yeah so, 
And I like, I'm, I'm not, I don't have a pediatric, um, or I, I never had a pediatric clinical practice uh, being an adult internist. Um, so it's not, I'm not hundred percent up on the numbers, but uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to convince people who have had chicken pox that you're, you're a, a terrible anti-science bigot if, if you don't take this, this vaccine. Um, I think what I would probably say is chicken pox is miserable. Wouldn't you rather have a, a two second shot than uh, a week where you're pretty sick? Uh, this is a bit of color commentary, I guess, but I, uh, I didn't get the chicken pox vaccine. I, I, I'm actually too old to have received it, but I also didn't get chicken pox because I was homeschooled. So I got chicken pox in Mexico as an adult and ended up hospitalized. And oh, off. nasty. And I kind of like to say that I had long chicken pox because I, I did not feel good for three months after. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, uh, that's funny. Yeah, it is, it's, it, it's certainly a miserable disease as an adult. There's no question. Yeah. Um, all right. Um, just sort of to move on, because I don't want to, I don't want to keep you too long. Um, you had, uh, you've written a number of interesting things and I encourage people to Google, Google your name and, um, and read your pieces. But uh, one piece you had, I, I believe it was called, I'm, I'm a doctor and I'm done with masking. Is, it, is that what they titled it in the national? Yeah, that's what they titled it. That's, I mean, I, I was clear in the piece that I've always worn a mask in certain clinical situations and I'll always continue to, but um, you don't get to choose the headline. That is the editor's preview. Yeah, sure. Of course, they, you know, they're, they're interested in getting clicks and they, they make the headline as inflammatory as possible. But yes, that was absolutely, the absolutely. That's part of the game. But yeah, it was, it was interesting to even, yeah, just to read a doctor who wasn't a thousand percent that we should wear masks everywhere all the time or else you're a bad person, which is kind of the, it's kind of the, been the message over about, well, two years now we've been hearing that message. And I'm just interested to hear your take on, on masking and maybe a more balanced view and what you think in terms of relative risk reduction or absolute risk reduction. When should we wear them? When should they be mandated? It's a number number of questions, but Maybe you can write. Right. Um, I think that in any medical act, every good practitioner considers potential benefits and potential harms. And ideally, if you have enough time, if it's not totally de rigor, you, um, you discuss those potentials with the, the, the patient. Um, on the benefit side for masks, there's potentially COVID-19 transmission decrease. Terrific. We can we can do our best to quantify that. On the harm side, unfortunately, most of the discourse on harms has been people who don't understand a lot about human physiology, worried about hypercapnia or hypoxemia, uh, or um, uh, rashes or skin infections. None of that holds very much water. That's been where most of the harms talk has been about. My background is in the humanities. I think that. There are many potential harms that we can't measure with a, with a blood gas. Um, I, I think of every dentist, every ad at every dentist is we wanna see your smile. A beautiful smile is so important, et cetera. Um, I, I honestly worry that we have less social cohesion throughout North America than we used to. And not being able to look, look at each other in the face and smile at each other, um, I think contributes to that, but I, I frankly don't know how to design a trial to show that me wearing like, or my community wearing a mask causes there to be less um, social cohesion. I, I'm not even sure how to quantify that, but I am concerned about it. I note with interest, I mean, this had to do with lockdowns as well, but the, the largest mass shooting 
in the history of our country occurred during the first lockdown in the spring of 2020. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't, I mean, I can't prove that that was related, but it struck me as a, a terrible coincidence. And, and then beyond that, I mean, there is good research to show that community masking makes life very hard for deaf people um, mm -hmm. who can't read lips. Um, it, it, there's good research to show that masks make it difficult for everyone to read your emotions. I actually had an experience where I told a joke in the hospital and I was smiling like this. And the, the medical student said, oh, Dr. Strauss, I can see how angry you are because your, your, um, your eyes are squinted. I was like, no, I'm smiling very hard. It was a joke. Oh, oh but, but so it's hard for everyone to read emotion with masks on, but it's much harder for people with autism traits. Um, mm -hmm. there's, there's a good medical literature that has come up about that. I have not made a new friend while wearing a mask. Um, I can't imagine what romantic encounters are like. I think, thank goodness I got married before the pandemic, but how, how do you go around meeting people at bars and asking them on dates if they can't see your face? I think all that matters and all that has to be considered in the, in the potential risks column. Mm -hmm. um, so, but that's a very humanistic assessment that everyone kind of has to make on their own after they consider the potential benefits. The best trial, what I talked about in that article is the best trial on the potential benefits was an RCT. They looked at 350,000 people. They went village by village in Bangladesh, asking people to wear cloth masks, surgical masks, or no, no extra intervention. They tripled the weight of, rate of mask wearing in the, in the places where they did this mask intervention. It was, quite, it was quite a lot. They went to homes and showed people a video um, with celebrities and, and politicians telling them the importance of wearing masks. They provided them with masks. They went to mosques and marketplaces to, to write down how many people were wearing masks. Um, like far beyond anything we did in this country um, in terms of assessing whether our mask policies actually do what they set out to do. Um, and they found that cloth masks did absolutely nothing. Right. So at this point, if you are wearing a cloth mask um, to prevent COVID, I think that you are anti-science. I think you haven't taken the best medical literature into account. If you are a so-called medical expert who is asking people to wear cloth masks to prevent COVID, I think that you're not an expert at all because the idea of expertise means that you have some interaction with the medical literature. Mm -hmm. um, I've had arguments with colleagues about this and they've sent me case control studies of 40 people who they telephoned and asked what sort of mask were you wearing mm -hmm. COVID. Um, that study is garbage. Um, and you know, no offense to the researchers, but you can't even begin to compare that with an RCT of 355,000 people. It, um, and then they found, they found a slight benefit from surgical masks. So they found they decreased transmission by about 10%. I suspect um, that by wearing a, an obvious clinical face covering, that probably reminded everyone, hey, COVID-19's around and probably psychologically primed them to adopt other health behaviors like hand washing and social distancing. I don't think it actually was a surgical mask that did it, but, um, but best case scenario, surgical masks, if you triple the rate of their use, decrease transmission by 10%, they did not look at mortality in this trial, which was a, an odd oversight, but I don't think a 10% transmission decrease um, would have changed mortality materially. Um, because ultimately, I think everyone is going to get COVID-19 or at least be exposed to it. And hopefully you're well vaccinated and you're in a good state of health when that happens. Um, and if you are high risk, you have uh, access to antivirals, but you're going to get COVID and um, putting it off well 
exposing yourself to all these other potential harms. And the other potential harm I didn't mention was speech and language development in children. Like mm -hmm. we have no idea what the long-term effects of covering children's faces for two years are. Um, mm -hmm. Anyone who says that they have an idea of that is lying to you because you, you can't have a science about something that has never happened before. We've never done this. Um, anyway, so that's my position on masks. I think uh, now that we have vaccines, we, we don't really need them. Yeah. Um, yeah, interesting. So I, I just, uh, as I said, I just did a big review on the whole mask literature. And I had read the uh, the Bangladesh study when it first came out. The interesting things about the Bangladesh study for me, it was kind of hyped in the papers as being the final proof that masks work and that we should wear them. Um, and to me, uh, you know, the like you say, number one, cloth masks were proven not to work. So that was kind of ignored. And that's what we've been told to wear for two years. Number two, surgical masks. And the, the, the intervention wasn't just masking. The people who got the intervention were also given intervention on <clears throat> education about social distancing, about how dangerous COVID was. They probably stayed in more and go out. Um, they were given information on hand washing, so they may change their rates of hand washing and other things. So it wasn't strictly a mask intervention. The other problem I had with it was, um, and, and this I'll, I'll kind of put it out there and maybe you can mention it, but I'll, I'll skip back and say when, when we brought in mandatory masking in Nova Scotia, it was at a time when we literally had, I think we had, you count the total cases in the province of a million on one hand, uh, you know, we had a few cases in the whole province. They said mandatory masking for everyone. And the problem with that is, is, you know, even if we could prove that masks reduce risk by say 25%, which is, you know, double what any good study has showed, um, still, you know, 25% is zero is zero. If there, if you're, if you only have five people in the whole province, five, five people in a million who have COVID and you go out in the street and you pass by 2000 people, your odds of passing somebody with COVID are pretty much zero. So therefore the, the mask can't work. And the way I've described it, it's kind of like wearing shark repellent in a freshwater lake. It just can't, can't really do any good. So that was one of the problems. The other problem with the Bangladesh this study, so, oh, so in terms of the Bangladesh study, the reduction was 10%, but it went from nine in 1,000 over three months to eight in 1,000 over three months. So it reduced transmission by one in 1,000 over three months. So if you put it that way to people, rather than it'll reduce, reduce you by 10%, the, the, the one in 1,000, most people say, I'm not gonna bother for that. Um, the other problem with the Bangladesh study was that they, they have a population density that's 100 times higher than where I live. And presumably mask mask wearing becomes more and more and more important at higher uh, higher population density so when you come to a low population density area which much of canada is and certainly you know holland and norfolk where you are is relatively spar relatively sparsely populated compared to many areas and is, we would expect that whatever they found in the bangladesh study the use usefulness of a mask is going to be lower i would assume i don't know if you agree with that logic or not i agree with um all of that. I mean, I like in their defense, it could make the point that if we can achieve a 10% decrease when it's low, maybe that would even be a, a higher percentage decrease when transmission is very high. I, I don't know. The study didn't look at that. Um, a, a couple interesting things uh, to pick up on from what you said. Um, you're right to say the media reported this is, as masks work and we should wear them. And I immediately thought of the sort of David Hume ought is problem that science can tell you what is. It can never tell you what ought to be or what you should do. Um, 
And that has been extraordinarily concerning to me throughout all this where um, people have uh, delegated their ethical and moral reasoning to what the newspaper says or whatever particular expert is on the CBC says they should do. Um, so if I read the paper and I'm in Nova Scotia and only five people um, in the province have COVID-19, what does it mean if I'm a kindergarten teacher and the children don't get to see my face? Um, science can't say that, that's sort of a moral ethical issue. What does it mean if I'm at my grandmother's deathbed and she doesn't get to see my face? That's a moral ethical issue that no RCT um, uh, in Bangladesh or anywhere else can really speak to. It can, like your, your ethical reasoning can be informed by the quantitative outcome of that trial. But <clears throat> it wasn't reported that way, I agree. It's interesting. Two two things I'll mention that would be if you 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 may be uh, already aware of him as a student of English literature, but C.S. Lewis wrote a lot about scientism, right? He wrote about exactly what you're talking about that when science was on the rise um, and religion was on the decline, more and more people had this idea that science could give them all the answers to how to live their lives, not not how to engage with the material world and how to manipulate the material world, which is what science is actually good at, but to tell them what to do with their day-to-day -day lives and the, the best way to live their lives. And that's really a moral, ethical, spiritual, religious, whatever uh, thing. It's not, science can inform that. It could tell you what's risky, what isn't risky, what is the nature and, and, and the magnitude of the risk, but people still choose to jump off cliffs and bat suits, you know what I mean? Because right. they feel it enriches their lives. And clearly, uh, you know, a medical officer of health, if we made them all powerful, would probably outlaw that because people die at it fairly regularly. But does, does it make somebody's life better? Well, I, I, I'm not gonna do it, but I don't feel that I should, as a physician, just because I know it's dangerous, I should be able to tell somebody they can't. Does that, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some interplay between it. So I think in some ways, <clears throat> without reference to uh, any particular religion, I, I think I believe that cigarette smoking is immoral um, because there's things you can be in this world. There's potential you have. Um, you can help people. You can build something great. But when you suck back carcinogenic chemicals, you're, you're, you're foreclosing on a lot of those potential futures. Um, and so I, I think that it, when science tells you you're killing your ability to breathe, to breathe and you're more likely to have a heart attack and you might not get to see your kids grow up. Um, I do think the, like those facts have, have clear moral um, repercussions. And I don't think you necessarily need a, a religion. Um, so contra C.S. Lewis, I don't think you necessarily need a religion to apprehend that. Um, but I, I did, I did grow up reading C.S. Lewis. Um, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, I figured, I figured you would have come in contact with him. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting. Uh, it, it is very challenging. Uh, I do find there's this slippery slope of the, you know, I, I, I don't like this name because it's so political, but the nanny state, you know, there's this issue of, and I guess this, we're seeing it on steroids in COVID. Um, it sort of started with, uh, you know, it started with things like you should wear a seatbelt and then it moved then it moved to you should wear a helmet at all times on a bike and i've actually spoken out strongly against that because i, I wear my helmet at all times i go at the door i put my helmet on 
I never wear a helmet on a bike. Yeah, Probably exactly. bike. We, I understand we both bike very frequently, but um, I went to Holland. Nobody wears a bike helmet there. They have a much lower rate of uh, bicycle fatality per kilometer. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I sort of read all the literature there was on it and, and kind of concluded that wasn't for me. Oh, I'm glad. I'll, I'll point you to what something I wrote on that. Cause like, like say, I just sort of mostly out of habit that I do it, but, but on the, on the other hand, like if I'm just scooting down to the store, I don't mm -hmm. want to have to stick a helmet on and I don't think I should have to. And I don't think the police should be able to arrest me when I, when I do, because I think the risks to it are really negligible. You know, like I don't put on a helmet in the car to go and drive down to the grocery store either, even though that, would actually provide more safety because people get hit injuries in cars and they could die but it just gets to some magnitude of risk where uh at some point most everything we do whether it's step into the bathtub in the morning or go for a walk you know uh, when there's been some snow we could fall and hit our head in either circumstance we choose those risks we know they have a small risk and i guess what happened with covid was the government uh, kind of outsource this huge power to medical officers of health to micromanage our risk tolerance for us and say, here's yeah. the risk we'll allow you to take. I'm really interested in the seatbelt example and I don't have a entrenched view. Um, so what I have pointed out to colleagues in our arguments is ways in which um, mass mandates are different than seatbelt mandates. For one, seatbelt mandates have been shown um, in papers comparing US states uh, or, uh, to, to save lives. Um, when, when they were adopted, deaths went down. Um, similarly with motorcycle helmets. Uh, I, I think the evidence for motorcycle helmets is, is quite good. Um, and, and I don't know, so, so if, it's, if it is scientifically well-approved, which I do not believe that masks are. Um, and the other thing is there's a lot of leeway. So I, I've never had, the parking attendant where I work checked to see if I have a, a seatbelt on. Um, whereas everyone was constantly policing everyone else all the time about masks. And so I, I believe um, it is required to wear a helmet by law in Ontario, but I, I never have and I've never been ticketed. So um, like there, there are these sorts of um, real life um, contextual differences that I think have some moral salience as to whether the government should um, decree that or not. Mm -hmm. So the other interesting thing is it, motorcycle helmets have religious exemptions in Ontario, which vaccine mandates and mask mandates did not. Interesting. Um, I, didn't, I didn't know that. I assume it's for Sikhs or people to wear. Yeah, but, but then I worry by, by crossing that Rubicon of now we're going to tell you what you should do, even if you're only harming yourself. Mm. Um, has that led us to the province of Ontario <clears throat> asking police officers to stop people to make sure they're not more than a block away from their home without a good excuse. So I don't, it, so the, the, the slippery slope argument might apply, but mm. I guess I, I just, I was comfortable with um, seatbelt laws up until now, partly because I think I'm, I'm, I am an idiot about that or, or I was, I, I think I was nine years old or so and I used to not wear a seatbelt and now I always do. And the law had something to do with that. And I'm, part of me is thankful for that. Um, but yeah, I, don't, it, I don't know. It is, it is challenging because I, I'll tell you, um, I was probably, I was pretty pro, I was pro seatbelt law when that came in, you know, that was a long time ago in Nova Scotia, but I thought that was a great idea. And then even when helmet laws came in for bicycles at first, I thought, oh, that's a great idea, you know, because, 
you know, we might save a few lives, maybe. And I thought, what's, you know, it's not a big harm. But over the years, I must say, I've, I've uh, kind of changed bit by bit. And now COVID has put the final nail in the coffin for me of the government should be allowed to micromanage your risk tolerance. And, and I do agree, there, there is this line where if you're causing a risk to others, i.e. If I, if I decide tomorrow I am driving my car on the left side of the road, screw all you. Well, that, that just messes everything up for everyone, and it's this huge risk. Whereas if I decide tomorrow, hey, you know what, I'm not going to wear my seatbelt. Well, maybe I'm being an idiot, but it's really just, I'm just an idiot for me. You know what I mean? There, there is an argument about we all use the healthcare system, but that's tough because then we should also be able to take our 380-pound diabetic patients and stick them in, in the fat farm for two months to thin them down, right? Because they're definitely using a lot of resources. Precisely. Um, yeah, the the we all use healthcare. First of all, if that's the argument you want to use, there has to be an opt out clause, um, which I do believe we have. I believe there are um, uh, low German speaking Mennonite communities in Ontario who have opted out of healthcare and taxes. I could be wrong. That might be Saskatchewan. I okay. my, my I have to fact. I'm not a I'm not a legal scholar. Um, but I believe you can opt out of paying into it. I think their concern was that their taxes were going to, to fight wars and they're um, pacifist. So they opted out of our healthcare system. Um, it, but also it's just, uh, it, it, as you outlined, it's an immediate recipe for totalitarianism. If, if, if the, I should be able to decide what you can eat and how much exercise you do, um, if, if I am allowed to prevent you from using healthcare costs. Interestingly, I read a, a, a very old paper, a health economics paper um, from the mid 90s in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, claiming to show that cigarette smoking actually reduces healthcare costs because you you tend to die around age 55 to 60 if you're a smoker. Um, so we, the state doesn't end up paying for your long retirement and, and the pension fund saves money if you if you get lung cancer and you're 60, which is an awful thing um, that that sort of thinking immediately lends itself to. Yeah. Yeah, I've read, I've read the same one. It might be the same. It might be the same paper, basically, but basically the same analysis, saying that smokers are actually cheaper in the long term. It was arguing against the high cigarette taxes that the reference that I read, basically saying that this whole idea that smokers cost the system a lot of money is actually wrong when you do the analysis. It, it seems logical from the outside, but when you get into it, it might not be true. And uh, in, in a way, I think it's a similar argument to. Uh, the, you know, the, the whole flatten the curve thing, I, I said right from the beginning, being someone who's very mathy, I have a background in math and physics, when you flatten a curve, you don't necessarily de decrease the area under the curve. You, you squish it, you change its shape, but the total effect size may not be any different, which, uh, you know, with, with COVID, to me, that was really uh, a relevant thing, because if, if we were doing all this and all we were if we were doing all these non-pharmaceutical interventions, lockdowns, mass shutting down businesses, all these things that clearly had harms, as you mentioned previously, and all we were doing was delaying things, did we really do any good in the long term or not? That's the question. Yeah, it was conceivable. And, and so I had the same argument with myself along the seatbelt lines, because in my very first piece for The Spectator that I wrote, I said, I'm glad the lockdowns happened. Um, because, you know, if, if your curve 
you know, if, if hospital capacity is a, is a straight line and your curve gets over the line, that's a big problem. Those, those folks who are over, over that line in, in, the, in the pointy curve um, may have increased mortality. Um, but if we could do two weeks of lockdown to get the whole curve, uh, not changing the area under the curve, but to get the whole curve under that hospital capacity line, um, that might make sense. And I guess, and there was so much buy-in um, at the time. And the other thing I said was, and I did feel like some folks, like my grandfather, were not taking COVID seriously. Like they thought it was the, it was just on the news, the story, sensationalism. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm legitimately concerned for your life. You need to be taking this more seriously. And once the lockdown happened, I think everybody got their mind in the game. Um, but the slippery slope happened. And we were, we were told two weeks to flatten the curve and we were locking down again a year and a half later. And so I, I even if some lives were saved in that two weeks to flatten the curve, I, I, because the slippery slope occurred, it might be that the harms in the long term were, were worse. So maybe that ethical principle of no, the government is not allowed to tell you you can't leave your home. Um, maybe that was worth keeping and maybe I was wrong in, uh, in cheering it on back in March 2020. Yeah, that's interesting, Matt, because I'm ex I'm exactly the same as you. One one of one of the best summaries I've heard of this issue is Glenn Lowry, L O U R Y, who does the Glenn shows, quite wonderful. If you ever get a chance to listen to him, he he had spoken about it, and he's a elderly and and black and overweight, and uh, you know describes himself as someone who's at high risk from COVID. When it first hit and they locked down and it was two weeks to flatten the curve, he was completely on board. And then it was a month and he was still on board. And then it was two months. And then he said he started to have his doubts. And then when it lingered on beyond that, he said, okay, now I'm done. I need to go live my life again. You know, I think, I think there was huge buy-in when it was two weeks to flatten the curve. We're all in this together, blah, blah, blah. But then when we went beyond that initial lockdown, it became clear we weren't all in it together. You know, the laptop class, we didn't we didn't get impacted. Certain people, government employees, teachers, etc., they were getting paid the same. They were getting pensionable time whether they went to work or not. Other people, uh, you know, went from having maybe a viable business that they had poured their heart and soul into, to suddenly collecting CERB and watching their whole life go up in flames. So it was. It became very unequal. Uh, it became less and less sustainable, and um, I, I think it became one of these things where the people making the rules were the least harmed by the rules they made. It was my impression. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think, and I think there's there's good real world data to show that if you were an essential worker, the lockdowns did you not one whit of good. Um, so if you were a bus driver, a grocery store clerk, or um, all of these folks who work with their hands and not with emails, um, you ended up getting exposed to COVID. Um, as though the lockdown had never happened. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, well, listen, uh, just in in interest of time, I guess we've been chatting better part of an hour, so that's probably good for today. Oh, I, terrific. I'll say my first shot of this, uh, but two other things I'll ask you. Firstly, is there anything that I didn't touch on that you think is important to mention? And maybe it's um, a place for a future conversation. I sure don't have the answers because I felt this whole time, this whole two years, I, I was just been, I have been whacking my head against the problem of how do we fix it? Like, I, I think bad government policies ruined people's lives. I saw, you know, more than, so much more than the two starving women I mentioned. I saw so much human 
horror in the hospital. I, I saw or I heard, um, I guess you were involved in, in the, the Kai Matthews podcast that Trish Wood did. I think that podcast alone should have been the end of it. That's, that's one of the wor- most horrible stories that I've ever heard in my life. Um, and so I, I felt like I did all of the arguing and explaining and shouting I could do, and still it wasn't changing. Um, and I, I, I guess there's a, maybe a political conversation to have, and maybe tonight's not the time for that, um, but, but I'm always trying to understand how we, how we stop this from, from happening again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I agree. Maybe, maybe uh, a good, maybe it is a good one for a future, future talk with maybe we'll bring somebody else into that as well. That would be very interesting. Um, how do people follow you if they want to see your stuff? Obviously, I've already mentioned they can Google Matt Strauss, S-T-R-A-U-S-S, and uh, you've got lots in The Spectator, The National Post, etc. Um, Twitter, Facebook, what's the best way? Yeah, uh, Twitter is my main it's the main place that my, I guess my, I have followers. So I'm, I'm uh, Strauss underscore Matt or at Strauss underscore Matt on Twitter. Um, I tweet a lot less now that I, I guess I have a public facing job and it, it just is a, uh, uh, it always causes someone to take something wrong and, and causes more, like it just, the I maybe have to change to a different platform because it just, it always causes hurt feelings. Um, but, uh, my DMs are open and people can always reach me there. Um, I, I will say it is my intention to start writing more. I think the pandemic is more or less over. Um, and uh, I'm hoping to have more free time and, and stability. I just had a daughter, as you know, so getting a little bit more sleep and, and hoping to start writing more. Uh, on my Twitter is a link to everything I've written. Like my, my webpage is an author.com link where people can look at everything that I've written. Um, that's, that's about all the ways to get at me. <laughs> 